Hi, you are listening to ACR 2018 Podcasts. I'm John Cush, Executive Editor of Room Now. This is a compilation of podcasts from the ACR 2018 meeting in Chicago, wherein you'll hear daily reports from the experts, the KOLs, and people making the news. Hope you enjoy the recording. I sort of start off with some of the issues in trial design. You know, it was a very large trial. It was done over, started 2016, 2016-17 season, 2017-18 season, not this year. Um, they had a, a large number of patients. Uh, and the trial design was basically everybody was on methotrexate, and then they had groups based on what drugs you were on. And, uh, and I had no problem with the groups except for the last group, which was the rituximab abatacept group with or without methotrexate or a DMARD. Um, and I don't see the, adding those. I mean, rituximab by itself makes sense. But uh, And they said that it was because it was before the data was known fully about abatacept. That's why they included that, that group. That was one thing. And the other thing is, you know, I understand this is all RA patients and you have really no information about how active or bad they are or whatever. Um, but it's mainly getting use in the elderly population and that's where it seems to be pushed and they're asking for it. In the general population, uh, I don't know that it really has applicability unless it's really going to be that much more effective in a regular RA patient. So the question is, is the data good enough or compelling enough that we should be pushing in RA patients? Uh, I was very impressed. Mm -hmm. And I think the the effect sizes were not trivial. No. Uh, these were threefold levels uh, in mean geometric means and um, protective uh, uh, levels of uh, antibodies. And I mean, I, I, I really was uh, moved by that data. Yeah, there's a lot of issues in trial design, but we've been talking about this for a couple of years now. I wonder what would happen. Well, they actually did the trial, and the results were trivial. I would, I would change my practice based on this if I could get this. That's the key issue because I don't think enough rheumatologists are pushing their patients. I mean, it's hard enough just to get them vaccinated. We're really bad at getting them vaccinated. Period. But then to push them to get the high dose, which is generally not available in the clinic in most places, um, it's going to have to. It's going to be a substantial change in practice. Does the data merit it? I think it does. It's, it is very strong data. Changing practice is going to be hard. Do either of you guys know what the cost difference is between high dose and traditional? She said she said ten dollars for traditional, you know, versus like over a hundred dollars. But I, I think it, I, I looked it up on Hippocrates. I saw forty. So basically, four to ten times higher would probably be a reasonable Not trivial if you got to pay out of pocket. Right. Yeah, that's a very good point. We certainly do carry the high dose vaccine in our department. We run out of it very quickly. Uh, state who's going to cover that for patients. 
there is a big cost difference in that. I give them credit for studying vaccines in a vulnerable population, which is what we need. That's an important result. I think it's a, we need to have a discussion amongst our, amongst our colleagues about how to best vaccinate patients. This is the season, and putting information out there is really important. Okay, moving on to the shingrix, the new, um, I'm just a unit for disaster vaccine. I'd like to hear uh, your experiences. Are you using it? Are you having any success? Any issues? Anything? So, might you start? Uh, you know, I, I, this is a vaccine that everybody knows is highly efficacious. Uh, it's been studied in virtually the same identical fashion as the, the live vaccine. Uh, you know that it is a preferred in the general population. We have an abundance of caution about this vaccine. Um, I, am, I, am, I am concerned and disappointed that we know so little about Shingrix in patients with significant immune-related adverse events on aggressive therapy. Uh, so I have an abundance of caution from it. Yes, I've used it on a few patients. I've had people, because of uh, our discussions, um, you know, contact me for over the country with anecdotes of, you know, asking me whether uh, flares of rheumatoid arthritis or lupus were related to it. I said, I don't know. Yeah, my, my experience has been kind of interesting in that um, learning from the master and talking about this with Lenny and and there is concerns about how our you know immune-driven populations are going to respond to this and will it be the same response and uh, I believe the company should have the obligation to study this um, but you know the feeling is because it's an active vaccine therefore it should be safe as other inactive vaccines are and and while this has come up a lot in my practice the amazing observation is way 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 more patients are getting this without my knowledge or consent. Hey everybody, Arthur Lau reporting for uh, Room Now from ACR 2018 from Chicago. I want to give you guys an update on the GEOP trial for cucocorticoid induced osteoporosis. Uh, Ken Sag just presented the 24 month data today at a plenary session. So I want to give you guys a quick update. So at 24 months, the lumbar spine, significantly greater uh, BMD increase at lumbar spine compared to the uh, residuinate group, 6% versus about 3% at 24 months. Uh, and in terms of uh, total hip and femoral neck, again, significant increases for uh, denosumab versus residuinate, about 3% versus uh, 0.5 to 0% increase in the uh, residuinate group for um, both uh, for both femoral neck and, uh, total, and total hip respectively. Overall, in terms of uh, fracture rates, similar fracture rates between both groups at 24 months for uh, vertebral fractures and for clinical fractures. Uh, numerically, there was a, actually a, a few, a few, a few uh, lower number of vert fractures in the uh, denosumab group, uh, but it, the, the study was actually not powered to show fracture reduction. But overall, uh, uh, things look really good for this uh, drug. Uh, there was no significant safety concerns as well. So, you know, overall, uh, the update here is that 24 months, uh, continued improvement from the 12-month data that was presented last year. Uh, and, you know, soon enough, we're going to be using this more in, in our clinical practice. Uh, signing off from Room Now uh, 2018. Uh, hopefully, we'll have more videos from me uh, later this week. My name is Atul Devdar. I'm a rheumatologist in Portland, Oregon. 
and I'm here at the ACR 2018 at Whom Now. Um, I want to talk about the question of inflammatory bowel disease in patients receiving IL-17 inhibitors. As we know, there is a lot of uh, information about ixikizumab in this uh, particular Congress. We already have secukinumab approved for the treatment of psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and ankylosing spondylitis. And now we have ixikizumab being shown to be effective in the treatment of ankylosing spondylitis in this meeting. Having said that, one of the questions in the minds of uh, rheumatologists is, what about the new occurrence or incidence of inflammatory bowel disease or flare of existing inflammatory bowel disease in patients receiving IL-17 inhibitors because IL-17 as a cytokine has got protective effects on keeping the gut permeability less or keeping the um, mucosal uh, junctions tight and if you block the IL-17 then at least there is a theoretical possibility that there could be leaky gut uh, so, just like secukinumab, exikizumab studies which were done for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis allowed patients who had a history of inflammatory bowel disease, but those who had active inflammatory bowel disease were not allowed. So today I went to a, an oral presentation by Mark Genovese and the presentation was, uh, this was number 1866. And this was incidence of inflammatory bowel disease among patients treated with ixikizumab, an update on adjudicated data from an integrated database of patients with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis. So they looked at about 1,100 patients who participated in the psoriatic arthritis trials on ixikizumab and about 5,000 patients who participated in psoriasis trials on ixikizumab and they adjudicated the cases reported by the principal investigators, those who had suspected ulcerative colitis, those who had suspected Crohn's disease, etc. At the end, what they found out was the incidence, exposure adjusted incidence rate was 1.1 per 100 patient years or less. This is not different from the uh, population-based rate that you see of inflammatory bowel disease in patients with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis. Now, mind you, spondyloarthritis as a class and psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, which is part of that, and ankylosing spondylitis, all of them have increased risk of IBD to start with. And here, uh, this number 1.1 per 100 patient years or slightly less is not different from that particular number. So this is kind of another reassuring fact about uh, use of these IL-17 inhibitors in rheumatology. So I'm reporting from ACR 2018, Room Now. Thank you. Hi, I'm Cassie Calabrese here in Chicago at ACR 2018, and I wanted to share with you an interesting abstract I saw in the poster hall by a colleague and mentor of mine, Carmen Goda, and our amazing med, med student, Chin Ni, on IgG4-related disease, a disease considered by some rheumatologists to be a, an orphan disease and often difficult to diagnose. And what they did was search the Cleveland Clinic database for all tissue stained for IgG4. And out of 15, 
100 samples, 119 met staining criteria for IgG4 related disease. However, only half of these met full histopathologic criteria for IgG4 related disease. They found that the, the patients were mostly men, middle-aged, Caucasian men and the most commonly affected organ systems were the pancreas, salivary, and lacrimal glands. And the pathology was quite variable. I think this speaks to how difficult this disease is to diagnose and this is one of the largest uh, case series now and has added a lot I think to this mysterious entity of IgG4 related disease. And if you want to hear more, follow us on roomnow.com. Hi, my name is John Goldman. Uh, I'm a solo practicing rheumatologist in Atlanta, a dying breed. And I'm here at the American College of Rheumatology meeting in Chicago. And I just went to a session that was so great, it should have been a plenary session. It was the study group on autoantibodies. And the issue that's so important was a paper presented by Stan Nades about looking at the way different laboratories actually uh, report and uh, study endocrine antibodies. Now we learned with, from the ACR uh, uh, ANA study group in 2009 that the gold standard for endocrine antibody is the immunofluorescent test. The problem is this is not used by all laboratories and patients who have lupus and other connective tissue diseases are missed because they don't do those patterns some of the laboratories don't even talk about the cytoplasmic patterns, and all of these are really very important. What we're finding out is that patients, therefore, don't get the appropriate testing for the appropriate diagnosis. And what needs to be done is to do the immunofluorescence and then follow up with what we call multiplex. And some labs are using multiplex as a screen, which is incorrect. Some are using other techniques. I once saw a lab that used latex ANA, which is terrible. So I think it's really important when this paper comes out, we need to know about it. This session should have been a plenary session because this is the meat and potatoes of rheumatology, a positive ANA and what to do about it. So I strongly support you look for that data. Anyway, I'm happy to be here at the uh, ACR and happy to let you know about what this data is. There hopefully will be more data on this on uh, Room Now. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Sam Whittle from Adelaide, Australia, and I'm uh, here at the ACR 2018 meeting in sunny Chicago. So in medicine uh, in general and in rheumatology uh, more specifically, uh, changes in our practice often come slowly, often due to the uh, slow and deliberate accrual of evidence from, from a wide range of sources over many years. But sometimes a trial comes along that in itself can be enough to change our practice. And uh, to my mind, one of those trials is the Scott trial. It was published earlier this year in the New England Journal of Medicine and it compared uh, myeloablative uh, autologous stem cell transplantation versus intravenous cyclophosphamide in patients with severe scleroderma. What it showed was that across a range of uh, endpoints including mortality that the transplant group did better uh, than the cyclophosphamide group. Um, it came at a cost though, the cost was that there was a high early mortality uh, from the treatment itself. So 6% um, of patients in the transplant group uh, died as a result of the transplant within the first six years. 
In today's um, plenary session, we were, were presented with the uh, long-term extension results of the Scott trial. So these are the data from year six through to year 11. Uh, and this was a, a really interesting abstract. Essentially what it showed is that the benefits that were seen in the transplant group were sustained out to 11 years. Interestingly, there were no further deaths in the transplant group after the sixth year, but deaths continued to accrue in the cyclophosphamide group. The transplant group tended to be better in general, they had a better performance status, they gained more weight and they were, uh, had higher rates of employment than the cyclophosphamide group. So, uh, so this tells us that um, transplant, uh, if you can get through the difficult early stage, seems to be a really um, beneficial um, uh, intervention for patients with severe scleroderma. The big challenge of course is going to be uh, for us as clinicians to decide uh, not only which patients to treat, but when to treat them. The, the key will be to intervene at the exact right time that maximises these risks and benefits, and this will not be an easy decision. Uh, but thankfully, uh, with data like these, we at least have um, much more um, uh, useful data that we can present to our patients to help make a shared decision together for this really devastating disease. So for more updates like this, don't forget to stay tuned to roomnow.com. Hi, I'm Suleiman Bana. I'm a uh, practicing clinical rheumatologist from New York, and uh, we're here at ACR 18 in Chicago. Uh, I just finished giving my uh, talk on technology tools for rheumatologists. This was version four of the talk. So what I thought we can do is discuss some of those tools which we have here, and I have some of my colleagues with me to help in that discussion. So part of the inception of this talk was a need for us to involve personal technology that advances very quickly into our rheumatology practice where technology is a little bit slower to adapt. And how can we take things which traditionally are very expensive to take into a rheumatology practice in ways that are much more cost effective but still give us the results that we need. So a lot of these things are add-ons to smartphones or tablets, electronics that you can use within a rheumatology practice. So uh, one of the things that uh, we have been using um, are devices that we clip on. So one example is uh, this particular device, which is called a, um, a thermal imaging camera. This is from a company called FLIR, which makes thermal imaging, and it allows us to look at heat maps of patients' skin and joints for purposes of inflammatory arthritis or vasculopathy. And uh, in, in terms of using it, it's pretty simple. You just have to activate the little uh, attached device here, and it gives you a, uh, a thermal imaging scan uh, of that area, though. So, so I know, John, we were speaking about uh, thermal imaging. Um, do you think you could have a use for use of this in your office? So definitely. I mean, I, I'm interested in two of the applications that you mentioned. The first one is to see whether joints uh, are inflamed. Uh, as, you know, sometimes one of the challenges that we have in, in clinical practice is that sometimes uh, for patients, either because of their body habitus or other issues, it's sometimes challenging to tell whether a joint is actually swollen or not, or if there is synovitis or not. I know that um, musculoskeletal ultrasound um, can play a role in trying to distinguish those two cases, but this seems like a much more simple way of sort of seeing whether joints are inflamed or not. Yeah, there, there's a low barrier of entry, entry for use of a thermal imaging camera, as opposed to an ultrasound where it's high cost, there's a lot of training involved in it too. I think the downside is that 
at least right now for these consumer grade devices, uh, thermal imaging is probably not great for very small joints mm. just because of the resolution you need. But I think for a medium to large joint, it's something you can be um, fairly confident that you can look for an inflammatory joint um, and have pretty good reliability compared to an ultrasound. Great. Yeah. And then I think the other application that you mentioned is for patients that have vasculopathy, such as Raynaud's phenomenon. Uh, do you think that you would use it to diagnose patients or to monitor treatment? Or? Yeah, you could probably use it for both. I mean, Raynaud's is more of a clinical diagnosis if you're having the biotriphasic color changes. But in terms of the severity of it and then monitoring progress, I think that's where the thermal imaging comes in. So ideally capturing images prior to interventions, whether it's pharmaceutical, non-pharmaceutical, the patient comes back now on an intervention and can you reliably track them over time by using a image capture equipment that you could then import the image into a chart. Yeah. And now we can always go back and look, it's like, well, let's look at their thermal scan from three months ago when it was winter versus now it's spring. Is it any different though? So it, it may have applications for that too. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'd love... Is it, uh, how much does it cost? Is it something that, you know, many of us can purchase and on our own? Yeah, you probably could. It's not extremely cheap, but the device has two different models. There's a standard model, which is $299, $299 dollars, and there's a more advanced model with better resolution for $399. But if you look at an industrial-grade thermal imaging camera, um, it could be anywhere from $2,000 up to $10,000. So you have to look at it in kind of relative means. I mean, I, I imagine at least using it clinically, just trying it on a few patients, and maybe patients that you're going to send for that ultrasound anyways because you're unsure what's going on, maybe uh, sort of seeing whether uh, the images that you get you know, in your clinic would match uh, what, what, whatever they find in ultrasound. And I think that, that would be a interesting, at least a test case, uh, where I think I would definitely use cameras such as this. Yeah, I think that that's what I've been trying to do now that I have incorporated uh, ultrasound into our practice, is try to see is there some ability to correlate thermal imaging with ultrasound. In some cases there is, some cases there isn't. Um, and I'll pull it, you've seen some uh, vasculitis patients also, large vessel vasculitis. You think you could use um, thermal imaging for prognostic monitoring of large vessel vasculitis? Right. I mean, you, you had described a case of Takayasu's disease uh, affecting someone's hand uh, in your presentation, um, showing, you know, improvement in um, the temperature of their, their extremity with, um, with treatment. You know, that'd be a great thing to monitor some of these patients. You know, patients can have damage. Um, mononeuritis multiplex or, or similar problems that might be neuropathic type pain um, and if they come back to you having problems with pain and your exam is a little bit you know equivocal something like this could totally make the difference in defining their therapy yeah so I think it's a matter of using it trying it um, the, the challenges are right now it's not reimbursed by insurances so that this is really something you would use uh, on your own ability, but you know, if it takes more time to do a thermal imaging and then assessment, you can bill on time if you need mm -hmm. to, but hopefully with alternative payment models, um, these extra technologies can get wrapped up into that as well. Um, so you know, moving along, we have some um, other devices that we use. So uh, this device here is called a, uh, an Alloclip. Um, Alloclip is a company that makes um, lenses that you attach onto a smartphone, or in this case, an iPod Touch, and what it allows you to do is enhance the camera to allow uh, better digital photography. 
This particular camera lens is called a macro lens where it gives you 21 times magnification and it can have applications within rheumatology, particularly for uh, nail fold capillaroscopy. Um, so if you're evaluating for somebody with Raynaud's disease and they have um, a, uh, symptoms of systemic conditions, you may be able to use this. So no, Paul, you were playing with this for a little bit. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think this is something you'd probably use, or what kind of aspects would you use this for? Right. So this is, uh, you know, this is extremely useful. Uh, you know, put right up to someone's uh, nail fold capillar capillaries. Um, I can actually snap a picture. You know, take a look at it, show it to the patient, and you know, if they have nail fold dilations or drop out of their capillaries. You know, that really suggests to me that there's a secondary process such as scleroderma, myositis, um, so I have to worry a lot more about that patient. Whereas if it's, you know, relatively normal, um, I can probably be more reassured that this person just has a primary type of Raynaud's. They're not going to be at risk for, you know, other organ dysfunction and uh, we can treat them and, and, you know, ease their worries. So this is a great, great device and, and I think you said it's how much does this cost? I, I think it retails for about probably 60, uh, 60 to seventy dollars. So if you compare that to a uh, a Dermlite um, imaging system, that's over a thousand dollars, and you can get as good resolution, uh, probably more because you're using your digital zoom as well too. I think one of the things that I think this two things that this does not have. So I have one of the the cheap dermatoscopes. Um, I think that my dermatoscope has a polarizing lens that sort of allows uh, for uh, to prevent some of the bounce of the of the light that goes in there so it, the images look a little bit better and then the, the other thing is the light so you know you mentioned that this uh, device blocks the uh, your flash yes uh, and it blocks the light and the only way that you get light in is through the sides through the cone um, yeah. so you know the derm light is nice because the light is directly from you know sort of from uh, around the, the lens um, so I, I think, ha have you had any issues with, with lighting? So, the, so far not. Clinic? I mean, granted, within my examination rooms, it's pretty bright fluorescent lighting okay. that's in there. So, And the walls are all painted white in our exam rooms. So, I mean, there's been enough ambient light to do that. But I can imagine if you're maybe on an inpatient setting where it's like kind of a darker room and you don't have necessarily an external light source, you know, this may be an issue. You yep. can't really look at what you need to. And the separate issue is immersion oil is that I haven't really tried using this with immersion oil to see can you get the same resolution, which you can do by using a derm light. Yeah. Granted, the price difference is in order of magnitude different. Yeah, that's so, great. I mean, for if you have unlimited funds, you can get whatever you want. But, you know, like I said, we're, we're rheumatologists. We have to be mindful about uh, cost and quality. Right. And, and the newer iPhones, such as the iPhone XS, has such really, really good you know, pick up um, for low light, yeah, yeah for light, low light aperture. So um, that's a good. It point. might not even be an issue. Yeah, because yeah, their their image sensor is much more robust than it used to be. That that's a good point, though. Um, just go, moving on to uh, imaging as well. Um, this is hard to appreciate, but this is uh, what's called the Goski uh, Universal Microscope uh, Lens Attachment. So this is meant for um, using on a microscope to capture still images or video. The way it works is this part of the device you put on the microscope uh, um, objective and this is where your smartphone kind of fits into. So for example, if this is your smartphone, it would basically clip in this way and you would point your camera right over the microscope objective and it all locks into place pretty solidly. So you can use that to capture 
synovial microscopy or if you are doing some dermatology biopsies, you want to look at the light microscopy, you can do that and you don't need a very cumbersome setup. So you know, typically image capture equipment can be over $1,000 or more, and you can get it all from about a $30 device, yeah. so not too bad. I think this is great. I mean, two weeks ago I was with my fellows. We were trying to look for crystals uh, under the microscope, and one of the fellows had issues in um, using the microscope to focus, and even though uh, one of the other fellows was able to see the images, she was not able to see them. So having some a device like this that all three of us could sort of appreciate at the same time would have been very, very valuable in that setting. Sure. I, I think we're all old enough to remember the teaching microscopes that had multiple objective zone. So that's the way we used to do it, to share images, I think we right? still do that. We still do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, do you do any microscopy often on your own? We or? do a little bit in our clinic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for those of us that might not do it as much, you said, you know, we can get on FaceTime or text someone an image and yeah. right. get a second or third opinion with this. So, yeah, it's um, true. easier to collaborate. That's a great point. So, let's say, John, you have a microscopy you're looking at. You're not 100% sure. You can take a still image. You can launch Skype or FaceTime. You can call up Paul if you want. Be like, hey, could you take a look at this for me? And it's all being done through the power of your phone with this very simple device. Yeah. You know, so so it's pretty neat and not not too expensive, easily obtainable. Um, also, while we're on kind of smartphone um, and tablet devices, so um, we were looking at kind of a, a range of applications from a company called 3D for Medical, which is based in Ireland. And 3D for Medical is featured uh, in one of Apple's keynotes. I think a couple of years ago for one of their new iPads, and uh, since then has been used in universities and teaching sessions, and they have a different suite of apps, and they have literally 20 or 30 different applications. I just picked out a few of them that rheumatologists can use. So uh, we were looking at one of the hand applications here. So you can manipulate a 3D model of um, a hand here. You can um, do cross-sections and look at it all in real-time rendering. You can look at pre-can videos of different uh, pathologies that are going on, procedures also too. And this is great for education, uh, for trainees also. Um, I, I think, Paul, you work with trainees as well, right? Yeah. Do, do you think this is something they would probably like or, or help them for their training? What I'm actually seeing is a lot of them will purchase this uh, to correlate their, the anatomy that they're seeing on ultrasound. Um, and you know, being able to peel away layers of a joint or some atypical position and just get a better understanding of it. Um, I don't know if any of us are strongly ultrasound trained, so um, you're kind of learning it. And Getting there, yeah. Are you, are you using this to help? It, or? It, it, I am using it to augment sort of, you know, ultrasound trying to extrapolate a two-dimensional image to three-dimensional. So this this does help for that, though. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, John, um, are you, so you treat uh, pediatric and adult patients also, too. Do you find that when you're explaining maybe things to the parents about how uh, illness or anatomy works that uh, these visual apps could help with that capacity? I think, yeah. I mean, parents, especially parents uh, of children with chronic diseases are always very concerned about the illness and really want to get to the bottom of trying to understand what's going on. Um, so this would be very helpful to sort of explain to them exactly like, you know, about speaking with a, a parent of a child with JIA, uh, you know, sort of having them understand what JIA is all about and how we use medicines to affect uh, the inflammatory pathways. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think this would be very helpful. Yeah, I was thinking also in when we do arthrocentesis for adult patients, you know, it's a very quick consent. It's done point of care in the exam room. 
you have more challenges from a pediatric point of view because you have to book studies, there's sedation involved, there's more involved consent. So when, like when you're consenting for a knee arthrocentesis with sedation, I mean, how much AV material are you using with the parents? So currently not none at all, but I, you know, I can imagine this, this can be helpful. Yeah, so they, they have applications here for the knee where you can render the knee in real time and you can kind of uh, strip down layers of the knee and get down to different parts of the anatomy and see the places that you may need to give an arthrocentesis or an injection. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I wonder, uh, Suleiman, if you have any tools here today that may help uh, patients during procedures. Yeah, so that's a, a great point. Um, so we've been having a few talks in the past a uh, couple of years, the so last year and this year, on use of virtual reality in uh, management of uh, pain, anxiety relief, pre-procedural management. Um, and there's different ways to incorporate virtual reality, you know. Some of the devices can be very expensive because they're medical grade, um, thousands of dollars per year, and they can be very helpful. There's some ways to be able to do it a little bit cheaper. So what we found here was a, um, um, a very generic kind of virtual reality headset, literally just bought off Amazon. Um, and it's about maybe $30, $35. And it's essentially a shell where within that shell you have a smartphone that clips in here that has an attachment for the headphone jack or for a data port to get audio. And it has a stereoscopic lens. And so the smartphone basically fits right within here. And the application you're using has a split screen, stereoscopic view, that then the user would look inside the goggles and have audio that comes in through the headset. And there's dozens of applications that can be used for VR. Uh, some of them are used for what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. So basically taking a user to a virtual environment, either that's 3D rendered or maybe captured from a real environment, so that they're away from their stressful situation. So whether it's in an operating room, a procedure, or maybe they have chronic anxiety, chronic pain, um, there's a neurobiologic effect that can happen with that. So I know, Paul, we've talked about chronic pain patients that come in. Um, do you see a lot of patients on chronic opioids or narcotics from other providers? So you know, what do you do with those patients typically in terms of how to manage them? I mean, you're obviously not the person prescribing their opioids. Right. But how do you get them off their opioids? Right. I'm, I'm fortunately a, a work in a system where we have an amazing pain uh, clinic and management group. Um, but you know, a lot of patients have trouble um, with anxieties or, or just issues with, with how all of that works. So this would be a great, you know, adjunctive piece of equipment and therapy that they can use. Yeah, absolutely though. And I think for your pediatric patients, yep. I'm sure if you're about to do a procedure or something, there's also a lot of anxiety and stress involved. And uh, do you think, how, how would a child respond to a yeah. VR headset? So I, I know that in my hospital, they're using VR in the emergency department for procedures like um, IV placements or blood draws. Uh, lumbar punctures and things like that. So it, it's been already well used. We currently don't have a setup in the rheumatology clinic, but I can imagine that something like this that is not too expensive, uh, I think would be very welcome uh, for our patients. Sure, absolutely though. So anyway, the, these are all tools that are readily available, um, easily obtainable, not too expensive. It's just a matter of if you're practicing and want to incorporate these, um, will it fit into your workflow? But it only takes a little bit to try it. So I would encourage anyone, if they would think about it, you can contact any of us and we'd be happy to help along more information. So thanks for joining us uh, for a look at some of these products and hope you have a good conference. Thanks. thanks.
Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm here in the Room Now booth at ACR 2018 in Chicago. It's been a great meeting so far. Uh, so far, I've convened a panel of friends to talk about what's hot in rheumatoid arthritis. I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Sparks from Boston and Dr. Artie Cavanaugh from San Diego, and I'm Jack Cush, as you know. Um, gentlemen, today we've got a few things I want to go down on the list to discuss, but let's start off with what you um, have seen that you think is really uh, a highlight in RA so far, uh, or maybe something you're going to see in the next few days. I'll start out. The data with the jackanips, maybe not new, but really there's so much more of it now that uh, we're seeing, of course, longer-term data with tofacitinib, additional data with paracitinib, a lot of data with bupacitinib, and further data with filgotinib. So I think uh, it's, it's exciting that we may see, are these all going to be the same? Is there really anything to the putative in vitro differences in terms of their cell activity? I think we've adopted them in the clinic, and I think that's going to increase. And we're going to get back to Jackson in a second. Jeff, so far? Um, I think the thing that stood out for me from an epidemiologic perspective for rheumatoid arthritis is, is looking at interstitial lung disease risk factors. Um, in particular, the MUC5B uh, SNP, which was associated clearly with rheumatoid arthritis and interstitial lung disease. Um, and the fact that this is related to interstitial pulmonary fibrosis um, may, may mean that these drugs that are used for IPF could be used in RAILD, and those, those trials are ongoing. And ob obviously, rheumatologists take care of patients before the ILD develops, and our work and others are looking at uh, things that happen for rheumatologists, so disease activity being the things that uh, we did show that active disease did increase risk for uh, interstitial lung disease within So the, the SNP was presented today as a plenary session, and that, uh, that was new and information surprising. I do want to talk about um, some of your posters that you had, um, sort of getting to drug safety and whatnot, but still, uh, safety, I should say, or, or uh, comorbidity issues, and that's the ILD story, which we know ILD and lung disease is a very bad player in rheumatoid arthritis, which I think is what has gotten you into this. And you had uh, a few presentations here, one a podium presentation on disease activity, another one looking at rheumatoid factor negative versus factor positive. Can you sort of summarize those, mm -hmm. uh, those results? Well, sure. The first is the disease activity. We look very carefully to look at dynamic measures of disease activity and to see whether active disease was related to subsequent risk of incident interstitial lung disease. And we did, in fact, find that high and moderate disease activity were put you at a two- to three-fold increased risk. Um, as rheumatologists, we really think about the risk mostly within the seropositive subset, particularly CCP-positive. Um, however, some of our work also shows that you can get interstitial lung disease, you can get bronchiectasis, even within the seronegative population. Um, so this is something that uh, should be on rheumatologists' minds um, as far as serostatus and uh, obviously treat to target might have other downstream ramifications of uh, decreasing uh, interstitial lung disease. Yeah, the, the, the seronegative story is really interesting in that you found in the population that you looked at you know, it was like 15, 16% in seropositives, mm -hmm. um, but it was almost the same number in seronegatives, right. which I find found really surprising yeah. and changes my, my thinking. Yeah. Your, your finding of disease activity driving it, you know, um, moderate to high disease activity um, led to uh, a two to three-fold increased risk, I guess, um, but the number of patients that qualified as having ILD in, the, in, in your follow-up period was still quite low. Mm -hmm. So... How are you going to answer the question of which of the high disease activity patients are the ones who are going to get into yeah. having ILD downstream? Yeah. Well, clearly further work has to be done to identify other risk factors you could use in clinic. 
doubtful that this new uh, SNP that they found, the MUC5B, is something that would be useful in clinical care. Um, and whether there's uh, understanding the natural history, you know, what's going on underneath the surface before patients get symptoms. Um, how big of a problem really is this? Are things getting better because we're treating patients better as well? Um, so I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done as far as uh, understanding risk stratification, things we can use in clinic to really go after the people that are most likely to benefit. So as it, as it I, th I think, is one of the ways that translates environmental signals to what we see in our patients, epigenomics, although it's still in its infancy, may be an important factor with, with interstitial lung disease. It's hard to see how it wouldn't be. I don't think we understand enough of it, but as you said, the genetics alone aren't going to explain it. The seropositivity and negativity aren't going to explain it, but there's an additional thing. and Maybe it's an epigenetic uh, factor that we can identify indicating the history of exposures. So, Artie, you brought the issue of the jacks here, and they are um, sort of front and center. We've got some data about, you know, baricitinib extension studies showing good data when you continue on barrier, switch from uh, TNF inhibitor to barry and whatnot. We've got new TNF inhibitors that are in development, some pretty close, some pretty far. How, what, what's the lessons that the new jacks can take from the old jacks in drug development and where they're going to sort of grow this brand or, or, or get greater respect for Jackson in, in treating RA patients? Well, one thing is the dosing. I think across the Jackinibs, what we see is that the companies can often find two doses that can be effective. The lower dose generally has a little bit better safety signal. And as we found out today, we had a, a session I moderated with the FDA. We were kind enough to come. And they pay a lot of attention to safety, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And they're very keen on that. So I think how best to how to look at the, the optimal dosing. I think as rheumatologists, we'd love to play around. We'd love to have many doses and tailor the therapy. But the FDA is very concerned about safety with these new molecules. So I think I, one of the things that I think may come is as we get additional safety data, maybe we'll see additional dosing options for each of the jackets. You know, the, the issue is, are they going to affect care, and will they be taken up well? It was obviously hard for the first one, tofacitinib, to grow the respect and comfort with rheumatologists, but, you know, we're gonna, we may have one next year, and it's one thereafter. We got, you know, upadacitinib and filgotinib, and what's the other one? Pefcitinib. was presented at this meeting, and there are others still. Um, Jeff, do you think that this is, um, they're going to become more acceptable as we get more in the marketplace, or what, what might be the the tipping point for rheumatologists yeah. and having comfort with JAK inhibitors? Yeah, well, I mean, I think obviously it's really good news for both patients and providers that there's a long list of approved medications for RA. Um, and obviously the new kid on the block is going to be sort of at the uh, bottom of the line. And But I, I feel like the, uh, the convenience factor, both from a patient and physician, is moving up the JAK class. And the other thing is the longer they've been... Um, uh, approved and the no new safety signals are coming out and actually several abstracts here showing um, the, uh, the, the the fear about uh, DVT. PE may not be founded in the sort of real-world clinical use and as it's being used in other diseases I think uh, it's only gaining traction as far as uh, people are becoming more comfortable as far as moving this up as far as the line of succession. The last thing I want to just bring up things that there's a few things here like fine that seem to be there an overwhelming recurring theme uh, there's a lot on biosimilars, there's a lot about weaning therapy, but the new thing that was surprising to me was the, this issue of seroconversion. Patients, you know, are, are factor positive, CCP positive, uh, patients who become seronegative or drop their titers over time. A lot of reports here about that. 
Um, and the question is, are rheumatologists doing this? And then what are they doing with the data? So, Artie, you've looked at some of this. Uh, what, what's the, is there a message right now about seroconverters? Does it mean anything? I think the, the bottom line message is that it doesn't mean anything to the individual patient in your clinic when you go back to clinic on Friday or next Monday. You shouldn't necessarily worry if they don't seroconvert. If they do, that's maybe a good thing, but it certainly doesn't seem to be a strong enough signal that it's worth pursuing as a target, meaning I'm going to keep changing therapy until you, be, until you seroconvert. And, you know, you think back to rheumatologists older than us who chased rheumatoid factor for years. And the hope was that if you decrease the titer, that that would not only be a biomarker, but that would be a goal of treatment. I don't think it's that case, certainly not an individual patient. And it remains to be seen whether, uh, clearly not all drugs can will do this, but, and the other issue is if you do see it, uh, is there really an association there with either a better outcome or, or, or no effect on outcome? How do you consider this when you're uh, talking about yeah. factor? Do you, do you recommend repeating it in patients? Yeah. Or? Well, I think we have clear already goals of target that are already underutilized. So to add CCP in the mix where it's questionable that the number needed to treat are ever going to be cost effective, um, certainly, it's interesting uh, from a research perspective, but how are you going to understand when you're treating a patient, whether it's noise, you repeat the same assay two times, you're going to get the same, a different result. So is it really going down, or is it just noise of the assay? Mm. Not ready for prime time. Such sage advice from such a young <laughs> rheumatologist. Uh, Artie, we should worry. Yeah. No, you think you think back of, of, you kind of alluded to, there are probably drugs that change rheumatoid factor, uh, like Dilantin. There were people on Dilantin whose rheumatoid factor would go away, of course, had absolutely no clinical relevance. So uh, there may be a dissociation between that. And I think, I think Jeff hit it on the head that is it cost effective? Is it worth doing for that next patient you see in the clinic? Right. All right. I want to thank my friends Jeff and Artie for joining us on his RA panel. You. See you at the meeting. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a room reporter. I'm here at Room Now at the booth at ACR 2018 here in Chicago. I wanted to talk about two studies. They were oral presentations, 962 and 963. They were both updates of the long-term extension, LTE, or now called open-label extension studies of two of the JAKs, of baricitinib and tofacitinib. And they were presented side by side, and what was very reassuring is up to six and a half years on one and nine or so years on the other, we found, or they found, that there were no new safety signals. So looking at incidents of MACE events, looking at cancer, looking at serious infections, what I kind of thought by the eyeball test with that was that herpes zoster rates were about the same in both studies and not increasing over time and the VTE rates or PE rates were very low and not increasing over time and for the first time we found the long-term data in tofacitinib where they did the analysis as well so I think the jacks looking in the long term are showing no new safety signals which is very reassuring thank you